Well, once again, I'd like to say hello and to say how glad I am to be with you this morning. It's a privilege to share God's word with you. And with Josh's permission, I'd like to be the de facto student minister among you today, just for today. Let's begin with a prayer. Teach us your way, O Lord, that we may walk in your truth. Give us undivided hearts to praise your name. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Last year, right before Christmas, there was an interesting piece of news that came out of the United States and Texas in particular. Near the city of Fort Worth, the first fully automated McDonald's restaurant was opened. That means a McDonald's run by machines, not human beings. It's one of those pieces of news you can probably only receive with a curious mixture of fascination and horror, or perhaps joy if you don't mind the incoming age of robotic overlords. One thing it reveals, at least, is a love of convenience. Businesses love it. Consumers love it. Everyone loves convenience. We want life to be easy, simple, painless, cost-effective. But wonderful as convenience is, life isn't always easy, simple, inexpensive, or painless. There's not always an app for this or a hack for that. Sometimes insurance won't cover it, or there's no room in the budget. Sometimes it's too late for that treatment or those relational bridges seem to be burned. Sometimes, despite our best efforts, life happens. And no matter our chosen form of avoidance, distraction, or escapism, reality is still sitting there, confronting us. And it's often in those moments, times of challenge, loss, hurt, sadness, failure, when we realise our limits how fragile we are, how needy, how dependent. And that's not all, because we who are Christians struggle uniquely against the world, the flesh, and the devil. But God's given us a powerful resource, or a spiritual weapon, prayer. And here in this passage from Ephesians, Paul invites us into his prayer life. His prayer is wordy, and a little complex, but put simply, Paul's prayer is that followers of Jesus keep growing up big and strong, that they become healthy and mature disciples, even though life's hard, even though so often we are weak. So we can turn to that passage now, and you should have an outline of my sermon in your service sheet as well. So firstly, Paul describes the God we pray to in verses 14 to 15. For this reason, I, Paul, kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And if we're not careful here, we might read this as a typical motherhood and apple pie statement. Um, Because it's not about God having one big happy family, but about God being our powerful Father. Every person... Every angel, every power, heavenly or earthly, minuscule or cosmic, is under his authority. And that gives us confidence to pray. No enemy, 
No obstacle can hinder God's answering our prayers. Here's how the poet Cooper puts it. That Satan trembles when we see, when he sees the weaker saints upon his knees. Because, of course, if God wasn't strong, if he wasn't able to help us, there'd be no points in praying. But he is strong. He is able. He is ready to answer prayer. And nothing can get in the way. In verses 16 to 19, Paul lays out three prayer requests. Here's the first one. He asks God for strength. Verse 16. I pray that out of his glorious riches, the Father may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. It's not metaphor. Paul's praying for real strength. But notice two things. The source of that strength is spirit. And the second thing is, it's strength for our inner being or inward person. The contrast is obviously with the outward self, our body, our physical selves. And though our bodies are wonderful and good, sorry to remind you that they grow old, they grow weak. And although we can and should pray for physical strength, for relief from pain and the effects of aging and so on, that's not what Paul's talking about. That's not what Paul's praying about. He's speaking from the perspective of the new life we have in Jesus. And that new life is energized by the Spirit. Paul puts it like this elsewhere. We don't lose heart, though outwardly we're wasting away. Yet inwardly, we're being renewed day by day. Paul's second request is for Christ's presence in our lives. Verse 17. I pray that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. This is temple language. But God no longer dwells in the temple. And Jesus, God's son, is no longer on earth. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And yet despite Christ's physical absence, he's still with us. Present in the life of each person who trusts Jesus. Present in the life of us corporately. If you've got a Bible handy, you might like to turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22, just before. Paul writes that in Christ, believers are being built together to become a dwelling. There's that word, in which God lives by his spirit. And this word dwell has oomph. God hasn't taken out a short-term rental like a penniless millennial. He's um, bought the whole property with a view towards long-term residency. Of course, when someone trusts in Jesus, God powerfully enters their life for the first time. But Paul's not praying for that initial moment of coming into a life uh, when Jesus enters us. He's praying for continual indwelling, for ever-deepening union with Jesus, deeper intimacy, deeper familiarity, Deeper connection, that connection that we heard about in Jesus' prayer to his Father. And a connection that grows stronger through our faith. Faith is the human response to God embracing us in Jesus. Like the father of that wayward son in the gospel parable. God runs to us, throws his arms around us, kisses us, rejoices over us. Faith, you could say, is the dumbstruck and humble realisation of God's infinite kindness to us, 
God's infinite kindness to us and his love, which is Paul's third request. Again, from verse 17. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all God's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Jesus, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all God's fullness. By the power of the Spirit and the presence of Christ, we experience God's love daily. And now Paul presses into this. He prays that God would help us to comprehend the immensity of God's plans for his creation and his people. And right at the centre of those plans is the love of Christ. At the start of this year, Jess and I and Zoe and Hannah went on a little holiday up to the mountains. No, we weren't at CMS Summer School. We were being naughty. Um, In theory, it was a holiday, but in practice, as so often happens, it was parenting in a more scenic location. Um, We did appreciate the the leafy environment and the hipster bakeries, though. Uh, We did all the usual touristy things, which involves sightseeing, of course, like at a sublime point in Lura. You may have stood there and gazed out at that scene, uh, that scene across the Jamison Valley toward Mount Solitary. And if you can, I'd like you to uh, call that to mind now. So vast, so green, so quiet, so majestic. Scarcely possible to take all that nature in, in one go. And yet we're told that from that lookout, we can only see a fraction, a modicum, of all the grandeur of the whole Blue Mountains National Park. How do we measure and describe Jesus' love to us? Not possible. And yet Paul prays that all God's people might have strength to do just that, to gaze on, delight in, wonder at his great love. Because as we do, something special happens. We grow God's love nourishes, strengthens, encourages, heals, restores. And this love is the source of our ability both to live and to love. That's why John writes, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God lives in them. To be filled with Christ's love is to be filled with God's fullness. It's only fitting then that Paul should conclude with praise. Praise for a powerful God who's done and who does amazing things in us and through us. Verses 20 to 21. Now to him who's able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever Never. Amen. Several years ago, I was at an inner city church and I witnessed one day something wonderful. In the evening, we stood, the congregation that is, at the baptismal fonts and we saw a middle-aged man receive that wonderful sacrament of baptism, of water and new life. A man who had had the most unimaginably wretched, 
upbringing, abuse, abandonment. A man who, to cope, had used drugs for decades. A man who, privately, had waged a lifelong war against everyone and everything around him. But a man whom our powerful father had changed by his great power and love. These were the questions he was asked and the responses he gave. Do you turn to Christ? I turn to Christ. Do you repent of your sins? I repent of my sins. Do you reject selfish living and all that's false and unjust? I reject them all. Do you renounce Satan and all evil? I renounce all that is evil. And then he heard these words. Almighty God, deliver you from the powers of darkness and lead you in the light of Christ to his everlasting kingdom. At the risk of sounding irreverent, and as a student minister heading into ministry at that, I'm not interested in a weak and ineffective God. I don't want a God that can't help me, a God that can't protect me or heal me or guide me, a God that can't save me. I need, you need, we need precisely the kind of God that the Father of our Lord Jesus is, a powerful God who outdoes, outstrips, outperforms every expectation we have, a God with no limits, God of pure perfection, the God who can incredibly, outrageously, as in the case of that man, transform lives, no matter how broken or ruined, no matter how sorrowful or weak, or how proud and stubborn. Because that's how strong and powerful and amazing and loving and good he is. A God with big plans, plans bigger than the cosmos, great plans for his people, and for his church. And that includes normal, ordinary human beings like you and me. That's the God Paul invites us here to glorify. And so in closing, three implications. Firstly, a gentle caution. This applies whether we see ourselves as winners or battlers or something in between. And I'm very conscious that I speak to you in an area where it is by and large the epicentre of middle-class respectability. There's always the danger of feeling spiritually independent. That can be subtle or that can be overt. But the result is the same either way. It's the voice that says, I'm strong enough to get the job done by myself and I don't actually need your help and I don't need to own my problems. But we can't be like that because there's no independent individuals in the Christian life. The only way that you or I make it through, and that's no small thing, making it through, is by the Spirit's strength and the presence of Jesus in the company of God's people. We need Jesus. We need his people. Now, true, Christians as individuals can love and do genuine good in the world, But these are the fruit of faith. Augustine wrote, If anyone lists his true merits to you, O Lord, what is he enumerating before you but your gifts? If only human beings would acknowledge themselves to be human and that he who glories, glories in the Lord. Secondly, you are loved. 
let me say that again, and I'm a very polite preacher. I don't mind if you've been dozing off or not paying attention, because this is important. You need to hear this. You are loved. Perhaps you don't hear it often enough. You are loved. More loved than you could ever ask for or imagine. God loves each of us, not in some vague, abstract way, but individually, personally. And God invites us, on the basis of that love, to pray to him, to pray big, bold prayers for healing, reconciliation, peace of mind, financial help, whatever our need or burden or care might be. And though it might be cliche, this little saying is true. When we pray, God answers our prayers in one of three ways. Yes, not right now, or I've got something better in mind. It's a pretty good deal. But according to this passage, there is a prayer that God will always answer, no matter what. God, help me to know your love for me better. God, help me to know the love of Jesus for me more and more. Why not pray that prayer later today? So finally, pray. Pray for yourself. Pray for this church family. Pray that we might grow. Grow by the Spirit. Grow closer to Jesus. Grow in God's love. John Henry Newman lived by the dictum, growth, the only evidence of life. A praying Christian is a growing Christian. A praying church is a growing church. We pray because we live only by the grace of God. We pray because we rely wholly on God's mercies. We pray because we truly believe that the Spirit is among us and is at work within us. We pray because that's the only way we grow up big and strong, the only way we confront life with courage and good hope, so that when God again and again has shown himself faithful, we join with the psalmist in singing. Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. The Lord's right hand is lifted high. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. I will not die, but live and proclaim what the Lord has done for me. I will give you thanks, O Lord, for you answered me. You have become my salvation. Amen.